All right. Before we jump into the word, uh, first thing, uh, youth kids, you can ask anything you want under $5. All right, $5 or, or you can ask your parents, what is the limit or what's our budget or do we already have plans? Yes, all right, just, all right. <clears throat> all right. You don't have to do this. I'm going to ask you to do something today, right now. You don't have to do it. So if you don't want to do what I'm going to ask you to do, just close your eyes and look straight ahead. Okay, do this. All right, but if you want to participate, turn to your spouse, whoever you're sitting next to, and ask each other and share. What is one of the hardest things that you've ever prayed for? Or what's, what's one of the times that you prayed the hardest? It doesn't have to be super personal. So I, I noticed I said one of the things. So it doesn't have to be like the most personal thing ever. And this was like the prayer of your life. But, you know, uh, the only exception to the closing your eyes, husbands, if your wife looks at you and wants to share and talk, you have to, you have to look back, all right? You can't just close your eyes, husbands. All right, let's go. Okay, give you guys a minute. All right, so what was one of the times in your life where you prayed the hardest? So it's funny, I see some, some husbands and wives, they're sharing and then they're laughing. They're like, oh yeah. Probably, probably had a prayer answered maybe and that's why they're able to look back, etc. Um, but you know, for me personally, and you guys might find this amusing, I don't know, for me it was very not amusing. Uh, but one of the times, all right, not the most, but one of the times where I, I probably, pr- I, I was praying really fervently. And it was when I had kidney stones. And I just remember, Lord, let this pass. Please, Lord. And, and there were times where literally I felt like God was uh, putting me on my knees, you know, like doubling over, like, whoa, Lord, help me to, you know, bear with this. Lord, what are you trying to teach me? And I, I was reading through the Psalms. Uh, I was, you know, praying. I was singing. I was, I was so connected to God during that time. And I was like, Lord, I will remember to do this, uh, but t- you can, I'll do it even without the kidney stones. Please, Lord, uh, remove it from me. Um, you know, we all maybe have prayed for something. There's been something on our hearts, and I know uh, this is something that young people do too. You guys, you know, as early as middle school, high school, even elementary school, there are times that we'll come before the Lord and we'll lay our requests down at his feet. We'll pray with uh, fervor and earnestness. And sometimes it can even turn into a very desperate uh, prayer. It, it could be a prayer of agony sometimes. It could be prayers of tears sometimes. You know, we get to this passage, 1 Samuel chapter 1. The series that we started last week is titled Unlikely, describing things that maybe are unlikely to happen or persons that are unlikely to be used by God maybe, or even an unlikely series of events. And today I've titled my passage or message, Hannah's Unlikely uh, Prayer, and I'll explain why I titled it that way, or maybe I won't explain why, but it should come out, I think. Um, And here's the thing, we find a woman who comes to God 
And she is, this is one of the most desperate prayers, I think, in all of Scripture. Now, we didn't have time to read all the verses, so uh, we did prep it here. You could pull out your phone Bible, or the Crossway app has the Bible in it, uh, or you could just kind of follow along and look at the screen today. Um, But we're going to go through more than just what we read, because the way we've done it is, you know, if you've ever watched the movie where they start with the ending, and then they flash back and explain why the ending is there, and then they kind of finish, well, that's what we're doing. We read what happened at the end. She was praying. She got her prayer answered. But let's understand why she was praying, why she had such a earnest prayer. And sometimes when we come across passages like this, our questions are, uh, sometimes, along the lines of, is there something here in this chapter that can help me to have more effective prayer where God will listen more? Is there something that I'm not doing correctly? Is that why God is not listening to me? Or, yeah, how can I really come before God and how can I make him listen to me? All right, what's the technique? What's the strategy? And hopefully uh, by the end of, of today, you'll, you'll have something that you can think about regarding those kinds of questions as well. Now, right away, in chapter 1, we're introduced to the family of Elkanah. We hear a little bit about his lineage in verse 1, but let's just skip that. I don't think it's that vital for us this this, uh, day. But you get to verse 2, and right away what we're introduced to about Elkanah is that he had two wives. It's quite impressive. I have trouble uh, keeping my one wife uh, pleased and happy. Uh, two wives, which, uh, young people, this is not the biblical pattern that God has set apart for us. Uh, I know there's some, it seems like when you read the text sometimes in the Old Testament, it seems like God doesn't really make any kind of ethical comment or judgment about having more than one wife. But I would point you to, uh, for example, Matthew 19 and the New Testament in its entirety. And even when you look at even the Old Testament scriptures and understanding God's original intent for marriage, whether he allowed it for a season or not, I think is irrelevant for us. What is important for us today is that this is not God's plan for us. All right? God's plan for us is one husband, one wife. Anyways. Um, he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Panina. Here, right away, though, we're introduced to another um, very important piece of information. Panina had children, but Hannah did not. Now, right away, we are given, that's a, that's a textual clue that this is going to be an important part of the story. Um, But back then, if you lived in that time and in that place, this would be an even more important piece of information. If you had no children, it was often seen uh, as an embarrassment. There were many people who considered having children as a blessing from God. So, right, the consequence of having no children was many times seen as God withholding his blessings from you. Even culturally and socioeconomically, uh, children were a very important part of your family's future. They were the ones who were going to help you and work hard and help the family build wealth. 
They were also the guarantee that the future of the family would continue. They were also the ones, uh, if you had many children, then uh, there was this kind of stability and security for those in your family who were weaker or unable to uh, live just on their own. There was a, sort of a very safe and protective environment. Having no children was actually devastating to be considered barren. And that's the first thing we're told about Hannah. So the first section of, of my message, I've titled it uh, Hannah's Plight. You can follow along in the handout. Uh, that's section one. Her plight was, yes, she was married, but her husband had another wife. And the other wife had children, and she did not. To kind of give us insight into maybe what the dynamics were here, if you look starting in verse 3, we're introduced to something I think that's also very interesting. Every year, Elkanah would take his family and they would go up to Shiloh and they would worship and sacrifice there. And I think it's a, it's a very uh, important piece of information that lets us see that here's a man who desires to keep his family set apart for the Lord and they want to, you know, they, he, he wants uh, his family to worship. He wants to teach his children about making those annual trips to the, to, to the important holy place and, and making the sacrifices in the right way. This was a big part of who he was and how he was going to lead his, his family. And so they go up every year. But what happens um, as, as you would come and give your sacrifices, and here's something that may not be super common knowledge to us, but when you read Le Leviticus, when you read Numbers, uh, you know, the two most skipped books of the Bible, right? They're talking about holiness and chron chronology and stuff like that. Well, some of the things we see are very specific instructions given by God to his people about how the sacrifices were to be done. I'm not going to bore you with everything, but one of the things that's very interesting is for a sin or guilt offering, you would make the offering, but you would never eat the meat of that offering. But there, were an off there was an offering called the Thanksgiving offering, and that offering, what you gave, you would also eat part of the meat, and a big part of it was that you'd have to eat it that day, and so it kind of turned into like a feast, a celebration, and it really uh, kind of marked the, the idea of, yeah, you're, you're back in, this, in the good graces of God. He, he loves us. We're trying to love Him. We may not be perfect in this, but God accepts us. He accepts our sacrifice. Let's eat to this. Let's drink to this. Let's be married together to this. Great news and great reminder. When you look at verse 4, for their family, though, because of this situation, you have Elkanah going up, he would sacrifice then of the meat that they were supposed to eat and celebrate with. He would look at Panina, his wife. He would see all of her children, her sons and daughters, and he's like, all right, here's the meat for you guys to eat. And we could almost picture the, uh, uh, the, the scene and the, oh, it's, you know, and the young ones being loud and crying and asking for more and the noise and the life and the celebration that would come from that side. And then verse 5, you see Elkanah look to his other wife, Hannah. And he would see she has no children. But he loved her. Right? It, it wasn't even, and I, I feel like the passage is trying to bring out, you know, I, I know for us today, we look at it and go, yeah, right, you loved her. 
you know. But yeah, he did. He, so he gave her a double portion. He was trying to express and communicate his, his love for her, you know, uh, love languages. He was using the language of giving gifts. Here, bam, double the meat. All right, I love you, honey. Hannah, you are my wife. Eat a lot. Celebrate. Let's be happy today. But we could picture this, right? The noise, the life, the celebration, the food, the eating, the drinking, the comfort, the relationships that is being built over a table of food year after year after year. And then on this side, the pain that's being built up year after year after year. In my heart, I wonder if, and again, the the scripture doesn't give us insight into this, but I wonder if for Hannah, the, the day that Cana was so looking forward to every year of taking his family, his household up to the sacrifices and worship, I wonder for Hannah if that was a day of terror and dread and agony. And as she got close to it, she would be anxious. She'd get worried. Because in verse 6, we kind of see the reality of, of her situation Panina is straight up called her rival. Her rival would provoke her grievously to irritate her, to get under her skin, to bother her because the Lord had closed her womb. And this went on, verse 7, year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, Panina, her rival, would provoke Hannah. And invariably, year after year, maybe she would go up to that place thinking, all right, this year, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take it. This year, I'm gonna be strong. I'm gonna show her what kind of woman I am. Maybe she would make some prayers and ask for the help of the Lord. Lord, I wanna be strong. I'm gonna stand up to Panina, my rival. Whatever she says, whatever she does, I'm not gonna let it affect me, but what would happen? She would be reduced to tears and unable to eat. What good was the double portion of meat when she could only know the tears and pain of sitting at that table, of having a a rival who would make it a, a, a point to hurt you? And she would try to hang in there, and who knows when it would happen, but the tears would come. She would flee. And you know, maybe Panina would be like, oh, there she goes again. The same old drama. Well, wish we could have one temple meal without Hannah, you know, breaking down and crying. And on top of that, in verse 8, you know, this is kind of, in a way, I think, you know, as, as I think Elkanah was genuinely trying at times to be a good guy and a good husband, but he tries to comfort Hannah and says, Hannah, why are you crying? Why don't you eat? Husbands may be familiar with this scene. Oh, oh stop crying. Don't cry. 
Hey, let's eat. Come on, you'll feel better. Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Alcana probably would have benefited from going to our marriage conference (laughs) and listening to Pastor Corey Ishida. Husbands and future husbands, this is just the wrong thing to say, I think, in this moment. Because clearly, what's the problem? Right? Well, we read on and we see while the rest of the family uh, are able to enjoy and celebrate and be merry, uh, Hannah is not. And in fact, we see her starting in verse 9, she goes to the temple of the Lord. And reading on into verse 10, we see her in deep distress, praying to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And in this uh, emotional state of pain and bitterness and distress, she prays this prayer, quote, O Lord of hosts, Right? Lord of hosts. That's an interesting title to use. The Lord of hosts. Because that's a specific title. Hosts is maybe another way to say, O Lord of the armies. And that was a title that you would usually use when you are about to call upon the power of the Lord. The ability of the Lord. And here, I think it gives us insight into Hannah's heart and what she believed of God. Because it's specifically a title that references God's power, his ability. The fact that he's an infinite creator being who can do all things. The Lord of hosts. And she prays, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant. All right? If you will remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. The second section I'm about to jump into is titled Hannah's Faithfulness. Because there was her plight, and this was her response of faithfulness to her plight. Now, the reason why I think uh, uh, her response was faithful. And there's a couple of reasons to this. You have her going into the temple of the Lord to pray. And she calls upon the Lord of the hosts. Right away, what does that show us? She believes that God is the one who can solve her problem. She goes to the one who could bring about the solution she is seeking. So she believes right away in the power and ability of God. That is what she believes. If she didn't believe in the power and ability of God, then she wouldn't pray to him. It would be a waste of her time. There wouldn't be that outpouring of pain and tears and bitterness. She believes it. Not only does she believe in the power and ability of God that he could give her the answer to her question and prayer, she believes in the heart of God. And that's why she prays, remember me, do not forget me. It's a way for her to, to say, hey, I am, I am your child. It's, it's a gentle reminder. Lord, you, you, you love me, don't you? And I believe she believes that God does. I remember several years ago, uh, I was serving at a church And one of the hardest things for me about serving at this church was that Monday through Saturday, they had like a 6 a.m. prayer service. 
And it's, you know, it's kind of early for me to be out there praying, but yeah, people would come and they would expect a, a, a brief devotional. And um, I was expected to, to uh, give that devotional sometimes if I had to lead that time uh, in Korean, the mother tongue, which I have really, uh, you know, it's, it's pathetic, my ability to speak uh, in Korean. But on top of that, to try and give any kind of devotional, anything spiritual, anything, you know, digging into the depths of the, of the, the Word of God, and I'm like stuttering. Uh, and, and so I, I remember the second time I just gave up and I just read it in Korean, which took like 30 minutes anyways. And I would just be like, you get the point. <laughs> but people would actually be gracious and they'd be like, yes. So, hey, let's go in. You came to pray. Let's pray. There was a few people there. I, and I, I, can, I can never forget the sounds and sights of this because they would come every single day. And it would turn into just this, an hour of weeping and crying and hanging on to the Lord. And there were, I could not understand the words they were saying, but I could understand the heart and the things that they were going through. And I, I just remember my heart breaking because I was like, Lord, they're coming here every day. I think they're praying the same thing every day. And I remember my prayers, I used to go to that time and I would have a list of prayer requests, but I remember reaching a point where I was like, Lord, just please listen to them. They are crying out. And I wonder if this is similar, maybe, to the scene we're exposed to here in 1 Samuel 1. Rarely do we see an emotional description of someone's state of being, but we see clearly what Hannah was reduced to. She was in distress, weeping openly. And if you read on even, and this is where we started reading today, uh, as she's praying, Eli, the priest, he sees her, verse 12, and it's interesting because it says he observes her mouth. Well, why does he observe her mouth? Because verse 13 says this about Hannah. She was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but there wasn't, there wasn't an audible voice that was coming out of it. And, and, and so whether that's a description of sounds and not words, of a groaning, of some kind of pain that was coming out, it is described as speaking from her heart or in her heart. And he looks at this and he thinks she's drunk. How long, verse 14, will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. So I think that gives us an idea of what that prayer looked like that day. What it sounded like that day. The priest thought she was out of control. And Hannah's answer to that is in verse 13, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled. I haven't drinking anything, no wine, nothing alcohol. I haven't touched alcohol, nor strong drink. But I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. All along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. But if you listen to, so I think on one, on one hand, you have her state of being emotional. 
which is very clear to us, right? We could, we could pretty much picture this and understand this. But on the other hand, you have her clear words of prayer that's recorded for us. And I think the words of her prayer are actually really, in a way, different from the emotional description we have. So it's, it's almost like, wow, this is crazy. She's like this on one hand, crying, weeping, great vexation, anguish, trouble, you know, blah, 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 words, oh, you're drunk. That's what we, the picture of, but the words are this. Right? And right away, the first thing I want you to think about as she prays is, what does she do? She makes a promise to the Lord to do what? To give her son to the Lord. So not only does she believe in the power of God, not only does she believe in the love of God for his children, but she trusts him. Enough to say, here, if you give me a son, I don't even, I will hand him straight over to you. The, the phrase at the end where she says, no razor shall touch his head, that's a famous Nazarite vow. It was only given to those who would serve their lives in the service of God's temple. Right away, her trust in God is so great that she says, even my child is not mine. My child is yours. So for many of us, I think we can relate up to, all the way up to where she's crying in pain, she's in anguish, she's like, Lord, don't forget me, don't you remember me, have you, have, all of these things. But I think this is where for some of us it starts to maybe be hard, a little harder to relate because this is incredible. We usually pray with a lot of fervor because there's something that we want for ourselves. And who here would have judged Hannah if her prayer was, give me a son, I need a child, I just want Panina to shut up, uh, I mean to be quiet. <laughs> who would have blamed her? Lord, please, let me have a son, one son. Panina has how many? I just want one feast where I could put meat on his plate and be like, have some meat, son. Enjoy a meal without tears where my rival could not provoke me. I, uh... Lord, do I have a future here? Is my future secure, Lord? Give me a son, please. I'm afraid. Who would, who, which one of us would judge her? But her prayer is different. It's, Lord, give me a son. I'll give him right back to you. Right back to you. And somewhere for, for Hannah, she's moved away from saying, man, my life is hard. My life is terrible. There's all this pain, which is true. But she's moved past that now. And she's not even worried about herself any longer. She is worried about her people. The thing that I didn't spend any time earlier going over was the state of the union. All right, is one way to say this. 
The book of Judges, which ends, and that's the time frame that, that's given to us as we come into 1 Samuel chapter 1, the description we're given of the people there. We see brutal acts of violence, inner tribal violence. These tribes, the, of the 12 tribes of Israel, they were supposed to be together in on this. They were allies, they were friends. In a way, they were all related. They were supposed to be the people of God, but there was brutal, brutal violence going on in between them. It was crude, it was sinful, it was shocking, and the description that we're giving, and this should jump out at you and I today, even though we didn't live back then, the description that was given was that there were no kings in the land, and the people did whatever was right in their own eyes. Whatever was right in their own eyes. Maybe even more than Hannah needed a son. People of God needed someone to point them back in the right direction. A prophet that would say, no, this is the word of God. Who would eventually anoint the first king of Israel who was supposed to lead them back. They were in a foreign place, surrounded by foreign religions. And these religions were so obviously anti-God and anti-Christ and anti-life. These religions that made human sacrifices, infant sacrifices. And in that place, they needed a leader to say, no, we cannot adopt all of these things. We can't just blend in. We can't accept this culture. We can't make their rules our rules. We are holy, meaning set apart. They needed a king. More than Hannah needed a son. If you don't believe me, what's, what I thought was really interesting was remember when Eli said, oh, you're drunk, stop, why are you so, you know, don't, oh, drunk. And she's like, no, no. What struck me as interesting is she says, no, don't, don't look at me like I'm worthless. Uh, all right, what, what verse was that? Yeah, verse 16. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. Worthless? You know what's really interesting is when you look at chapter 2, all right, this is not up there, so you gotta just, just listen. When you look at chapter 2 and you see verses uh, 12 to 17, all right, it, 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 it's crazy. We, we see. Uh, the sons of Eli. The sons of Eli. So they were part of the priestly leadership of, of Israel. And this is what's written about them. Now the sons of Eli, verse 12, were worthless men. Worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And it goes on to describe why they were worthless men who did not know the Lord. You know what the, the, what the sons of Eli were doing? So... When the people would come and they brought their offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. All right, the book of Leviticus, as I pointed out earlier, it gave the people of Israel, it gave the priestly leaders of the people of Israel specific instructions what to do with those uh, sacrifices. But what was clear was there were certain parts of that sacrifice were, which were to be set apart for the Lord and the Lord alone. And then there were parts of that sacrifice that the priests were allowed to take. It was given as a provision uh, for the priests so that they could eat and live also. 
But what the sons of Eli were doing as the meat was burning, they were taking whatever they wanted, whatever. They would just stick a fork in there and they would say, whatever comes out is going to be mine. And if the people protested and they said, uh, you know what, let's try to follow along with what God said, they would say, hey, either you do it or I'm going to use force. What we see in verses 12 to 17 is a blatant disregard for the commandments of the Lord, the standards of the Lord, the desire of the Lord, and they treated those things with such contempt, such boldness, such recklessness, that it was inexcusable and they are described as worthless. They had no value to God's kingdom. Israel needed somebody. Now here's the thing. And this, is, this may be very interesting or important to many of us personally. Because I think many of us know what it's like to pray and ask for something and just maybe feel like God's not responding the way we want it. We've, we already know the end of this story. God gave... Hannah a son. If we read on, we know that Hannah and Elkanah did not hesitate to do as they promised. They gave Samuel right away into the services of the Lord. But before that happened, all right, after, uh, after Hannah says, look, in verse 16, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. This is what Eli says to her in verse 17. Go in peace. And the God of Israel, grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate. And her face was no longer sad. The way she entered the temple was completely different from the way she exited the temple. She came in as someone who was distraught in bitterness full of tears, a language of her heart that was so painful it came out as, I don't know, sounds maybe, or groaning maybe, or even maybe inaudible. But she left with a countenance that is specifically described as no longer sad. She went and ate, did what she had trouble doing before. The way I see this is she received the peace of God. I can't, I don't have the boldness to stand before you and say, hey, if you pray hard enough, God will give you what you want. But I believe if we pray in faithfulness the way that Hannah prayed, and I think, you know, I don't, look, I don't think the point of this passage is that God wanted to give us a template for prayer, like, hey, you know why I'm not answering you? Look at how Hannah prayed. Can you pray like her a little bit? Come on now. The 30-second the, the prayer before you leave the house is not going to cut it. Look at Hannah's prayer. I, I, I have trouble seeing that as God's intention with chapter 1. Because why? What was the rest of the book about? The plan and purpose of God as he would never forget his people. What's the entire book of the Bible about? His plan and purpose as he would never forget the people of God. And it was to the point where Hannah was included. So in verse 19, God could say to Hannah, I remember you. God remembered her. At 
And maybe God doesn't always give us exactly everything we ask for, but when we do come to him, when we trust him, when we lay out our heart before him, and when we say, Lord, I am yours, what, every blessing I have is yours anyways. And when we start thinking about others around us, and we maybe sometimes, if, if, if it's possible, if there's a way, and we take away sometimes, and we, you know, the spotlight on, on everything we maybe need or think we need, and we're able to step back from that. You know what I believe God gives us? His peace. Either he gives you what he wants, or he gives you a way to deal with it. And before Hannah even got the answer, she was happy. Even before she got the answer, before she got the son, before she got what she was so desperately praying for, she received the peace of God. And God is so faithful to us today. God is not a God who forgets. The, the, when, when scripture says God remembers, it's, it's human language trying to describe an infinite God. It's trying to describe the actions that he p- takes to remind us once again that he is real and his love for us is real. And I don't, you know, as a pastor, one of the hardest things for me as a pastor is when I know someone that I care for is suffering and they're praying about it, but it doesn't seem like anything's you know, that's hard. And I don't always understand why it's like that. But what I do know with all certainty is that even though we may not understand the reason why we go through what we go through every day, there will be a day when he takes every single tear away from us. Gone forever. Every single source of pain, vanquished and removed. Every single sin that's been committed against us and we've committed against someone else, disappear, gone forever. Never experience that again. That I do know. And maybe, just maybe, Maybe, I don't know. When we come and we pray for the things we pray for, God is saying, I will give you what you want, but it's going to be for an eternity. You're praying for healing, I will heal you for all of eternity. You will live forever, never to die again. You're in pain, I will heal that for all of eternity. I don't know. And in the meantime, yeah. Maybe the best we'll get, but it's great, is the peace of God. To have a faith that will trust him and follow him all of our days. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, your love is sometimes a little hard for us to fully grasp and understand because in our minds, things are more straightforward. If you love us, then why wouldn't you do this for us? If you love us, why wouldn't you remove this from us? If you loved us, why wouldn't you give this to us? 
Lord, uh, we're reminded over and over again that your love for us never falters, never fails, that you demonstrated your love for us in this way, that while we were still sinners, you died for us. You promised to us an unimaginable eternity of being without tears and being without pain and only knowing joy and happiness and peace. I pray that, Lord, you would help us to pray with passion and fervor and faithfulness, that we would cling on to you, that we would trust you, and then that you would give us peace. You would give us strength to keep moving forward. Heavenly Father, that you would remind us how you have given us everything you could give, your one and only son. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. We're going to go into a time of giving our offering to the Lord. Uh, so as the ushers come around, please uh, let's give it with a grateful heart. Let's give